This is Jeremy Myers, and you're listening to the Redeeming God Podcast. So we're back to our study of Ephesians, and today we will be looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, and specifically the meaning of the word saved or salvation. Paul's famous phrase in where he introduces it in verse uh, 5, <clears throat> by grace you have been saved. And we're going to see that a misunderstanding of this word saved or salvation leads to a misunderstanding of the entire chapter of Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, but when we properly understand what the word salvation means in this context, then we can better understand the whole of the chapter as well. Okay, so that's where we're headed today. We will, of course, begin with a question from a reader uh, about something I taught from Matthew chapter 13 a couple months back and uh, the parable of the wheat and the tares. Uh, before we get to that, however, I, I hope you took advantage of my offer about mm, three, four weeks back to get some free Bitcoin and Dogecoin. These are these cryptocurrencies that are in the news a lot recently. Uh, back at the time... About a month back, three weeks back, Bitcoin was at $32,000 each, and Dogecoin was $0.19 cents each. Uh, today, <clears throat> I checked right before I started recording, Bitcoin is up to $46,500. Uh, that's a, an increase of 45% in just a month. And Dogecoin is currently at $0.32, cents, which is an increase of 68% in just one month. So, uh, look, I'm not giving you financial advice, uh, but I personally am glad that I bought a little bit of both. By the way, you don't have to buy a whole, a whole uh, Bitcoin. I don't have, uh, even, even a month ago, I don't have $30,000 to drop on a, a, a Bitcoin. Um, maybe you do, but I don't. And uh, so you, you can buy a tiny little teeny bit of a fraction of one, you know, even as little as I think five bucks or whatever uh, into a Bitcoin. And uh, anyway, that, that's what I did, just a tiny little amount. And uh, so I'm up, <clears throat> you know, between the two, about 50% profit in a month. So that's pretty good. Now, the reason I, only reason I told you this is not a financial podcast, I do not give financial advice. You need to do, do your own due diligence, make your choices uh, that make sense for you and your financial situation. Okay, there's all the disclaimers. But really, the only reason I brought all this up to you is because I now accept cryptocurrency on my website for joining my discipleship group. And I have some steps in place so that if you follow the steps I lay out, you can end up getting about $60 in free cryptocurrency, Bitcoin and a couple of others. And uh, then you can use those. You can convert them to Bitcoin. You can convert, convert them to Dogecoin, whatever. And you can use those to join my discipleship group if you want, which is, you know, $9 a month. So you get your $60 in free cryptocurrency, spend $9 to join my discipleship group if you've been thinking of doing that, and you still have $50 extra of cryptocurrency. You can sell it, you can convert it to cash, you can, whatever you want to do, uh, hold on to it because who knows, maybe it goes up 50% in a month. I don't know. Uh, that's the only reason I laid all that out to you. It's basically a free way to join my discipleship group. Now, uh, if you're already part of my discipleship group, you obviously can still get the free cryptocurrency, the free $60 in the steps I laid out there, okay? So anyway, if, you, if that's something you want to do, I'm <clears throat> just sort of mentioning it here, uh, you can go to redeeminggod.com slash paywithcrypto, pay-with-crypto, 
And all of the steps are laid out there for you on how to get your free cryptocurrency. And then if you want to, completely optional, use some of it to join my discipleship group, okay? For a month, a year, whatever, okay? So uh, that's there for you. And uh, look, you might say, oh, but it's already risen so much, it's going to go down. Look, I can't predict the future. I don't know what's going to happen. But my personal opinion is, again, not financial advice, is that we are still very, very early in the cryptocurrency market. Okay, uh, there's very low worldwide adoption right now, but I see it getting uh, much more, there's going to be much more adoption going forward. I'm convinced of it. I even hear rumors that... Uh, Places like Costco or Walmart or Amazon, Apple, um, even Tesla uh, are, are going to start accepting cryptocurrency. AMC Theaters has announced that they're going to start accepting uh, Bitcoin. Uh, there's lots of other places that, st that are starting to accept it as well. I accept it on my website. So anyway, as adoption increases, the prices will increase as well. We're very, very early in that cryptocurrency market opportunity. Okay, so anyway, again, not financial advice. I'm not a financial advisor. Do your own due diligence. Don't put money into crypto that you can't afford to lose. It is an investment option that you need to make uh, with wisdom and uh, based on your uh, what, what is available to you and, and what uh, what choices are right for you. Okay, so with all of that in mind, you have mail. Yes, let's get into the question from our reader. Uh, this was actually from a member of the discipleship group. He listened to the podcast study I did a couple, about a month or two, well, more than that, a while back on the parable of the wheat and the tares in Matthew 13, 24 to 30. And here was his question. He said, my question was in the study of the wheat and the tares, where you say that the wheat are the ideas of God and the tares are the ideas of the evil one, if I understand correctly. In Matthew 13, 38, it refers to them as people. I'm confused. Thanks for your response. Okay, so it's a very insightful question because uh, what this, um, what this, this reader, this listener has noticed is uh, a difference in Bible translations, honestly. Uh, he is using the NIV, the New International Version. And what the New International Version translators have done is they've taken a Greek word, uh, weos, which means sons in Greek, or son, and they translated it as people. And so this person read this in the NIV and saw that uh, it's not referring to sons of the wicked one or sons of the kingdom, but uh, to people. And so therefore, how can I say that these are ideas or offspring, okay, uh, of ideas rather than people? As I, as I argued uh, in that podcast. Okay, anyway, uh, the answer is that uh, the word people is a poor translation. It's, it, it, the NIV should not have translated it people. They're letting their bias, their views on what the parable means, get in the way of the translation, and um, so their translation is not accurate. It should be translated as sons. Now again, I get it. The word son uh, tends to give you the idea of a person, uh, um, you know, Generally, when you think of a son, you think of someone who has a father. In our language, we tend to think that these are male children, male offspring, and so on. But what I argued in that podcast study from several months back is that there is a sort of um, symbolic way of, or metaphorical way. In, the Bible often uses the word son. Yes, it can refer to the child of someone, but it can be used figuratively. 
in connection to an idea or a concept. So, so rather than is referring to you know a human, a male human person uh, who is part of a family, it can refer to um, concepts or ideas. So. Uh, in Luke, for example, 16.8, the sons of this world are contrasted with the sons of light, okay? And yes, it's sort of referring to people in a sense, but really it's in reference to the ideas that separate some people from others, the, the, the concepts or ideas that guide and govern their life, okay? Uh, a, a student or disciple of the Pharisees could be called a son of the Pharisees. Well, is a son of the Pharisees really a biological blood relative offspring of a Pharisee? No. The son of a Pharisee is, yes, it's a person, but it is somebody who has adopted the ideas uh, of the Pharisees and the things that they teach. Okay? So, um, similarly, Luke 20, 36 speaks of the sons of the resurrection. Well, how does the resurrection have offspring, have children? It, it doesn't. Again, it's a metaphorical, it's a figurative way of referring to the results or offspring from the resurrection. Similarly, in other passages, we read about the sons of this age, the sons of disobedience, the sons of the devil. Okay, does the devil have sons, children, offspring? No, but does the devil does uh, deceive and try to tempt people to uh, turn away from God. And, and so uh, there is offspring, results, consequences that come to people who follow these deceptive practices of the devil, okay? So anyway, that's sort of the way I'm arguing about this uh, concept, sons of the kingdom, sons of uh, uh, the kingdom of darkness, and so on, in the parable of the wheat and the tares from Matthew 13. And the fact that NIV uses the word people, it's just because it's a poor translation. I hope that sort of helps you understand, um, answer that question and understand that parable a little bit more. Again, if you want to go back and read or hear what I taught about that, you can just search my website for the parable of the wheat and the tares, Matthew 13, 24 to 30. Uh, there's a search box in the lower right-hand corner of the website, or just search Google for it, redeeminggod.com, and then parable of the wheat and tares, Matthew 13, 24 to 30. It pops up that way. Also, if you just go to the show notes manuscript section for this podcast, redeeminggod.com, Ephesians 2, 5 through 7, I will link to the study there as well. Okay, so that's um, that's the answer to that question. Let's get on to our study of Ephesians 2, 5 through 7. So in previous studies of Ephesians chapter 2, just by way of summary here, I've stated that Ephesians 2 may be one of the most misunderstood chapters in the Bible. Uh, most people, when they read Ephesians chapter 2, they sort of focus on the first 10 verses is all, rather than the whole chapter. And uh, they sort of rip it out of the overall context of Ephesians as well. And they think that the, the message of Ephesians 2 is how great of sinners we are, and so Jesus came, and if we believe in him, we can have eternal life and go to heaven when we die. Okay? Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is the central verses. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is gift of God. We'll be talking about that verse uh, either next time or the, or the time after that, uh, when, we, when we get to Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Okay? Um, the problem, as I mentioned with that, is it completely ignores the last half of Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 is um, written in sort of three parts, problem, solution, application. 
And to help you properly understand the problem, as stated in verses 1 through 4, and the solution, as stated in verses 5 through 10, it's very, very helpful to look at the application, as stated in verses 11 through 24. Okay, and guess what? When you go and look at verses 11 through 24, it's about, based on everything I've just taught, this is what Paul is saying, based on everything I've just told you, you need to live at peace with one another, and no longer let the divisions of culture and religion and race separate you the way they used to. Okay, don't kill and condemn and accuse and and hate one another anymore. Instead, love one another as God has loved us in Jesus Christ. That's the application. Okay, now look, that application does not naturally follow the traditional explanation of what Ephesians 2 is all about. So what I've been arguing is that if we take the application section as sort of a key on how to properly understand Ephesians chapter 2, we come up with a completely different understanding for the chapter, which is all about the great problem that humanity faces, Ephesians 2, 1 through 4, is that we live in the realm of death. We, we seek to kill and accuse uh, one another. Uh, this is what the lies of Satan are all about. We were blinded by the lies of Satan to kill and condemn and accuse one another, to demonize our enemies so that we can kill them in God's name. We, we feel like by going to war with our enemies, we are, we are carrying out God's will. Okay, that's the great problem. The solution, as we we're talking about uh, in the previous study and then in this one and the next couple as well, is what God has revealed to us in Jesus Christ and how we can change our thinking, change our, our ways as a result of that. Okay, and one of the big keys, let me rephrase that, one of the big problems for why people have this misunderstanding of Ephesians chapter 2 is because of one of the key words in this chapter, which is the word saved or salvation. By grace are you saved through, through faith. Okay, and I get it. Uh, how do we receive eternal life? Well, by grace through faith. No arguments from me on that. I, you receive eternal life by believing having faith in Jesus Christ for it, and it is received graciously as a, by, by God's free grace. Okay, so you, people look at this, oh, well, I see the word grace, I see the word faith, and I see this word saved. That must be referring to eternal life. And that's where the misunderstanding of Ephesians chapter 2 comes from. But guess what? I've argued elsewhere uh, numerous times and I will have an entire entry in my Gospel Dictionary online course for my discipleship group members on the word salvation. It's not there yet, but it will be. Um, work on that has slowed down significantly as I've run into some problems and so on. But anyway, I'm, I am making progress on it, working on the entry for the word love right now. Uh, but anyway, I've taught elsewhere, and I will teach there, that the word saved or salvation, nowhere, I'm convinced of it. Nowhere in the Bible refers to how Christians usually think of it as, you know, uh, having forgiveness of sin so you can escape hell and go to heaven when you die, that sort of a concept. I would never phrase it that way, but some people do, and that's sort of the common understanding of what it means to be saved. Have you been saved? Well, by what they mean by that, you know, have you received forgiveness of sin so you can receive eternal life and go to heaven when you die? That's the idea of what people think the Bible teaches about salvation. 
And I'm convinced the Bible nowhere uses the word salvation or any any of its the salvation words in the word family, you know, saved, salvation, savior, saving, that sort of thing. Okay? It nowhere means how the how most Christians use it, which causes us to understand or misunderstand lots and lots of passages in the Bible. Okay? What does the word salvation saved uh, mean? Well, I've argued, and I will argue, that uh, another good translation for the sozo, or soteria, word family, the Greek word family, yes, salvation, saved is fine, but, uh, you know, that, that word carries so much theological baggage in the minds of most Christians. I argue that it's better to put in another fine translation, which would be the word deliverance, delivered, okay, deliverer, that sort of thing. Um, and, and so whenever you see the word saved in the Bible, just stop, pause, put in the word delivered, and then what you do is you look in the context of that verse to find out what kind of deliverance is in view. Whenever you see the word salvation, put in the word deliverance. Whenever you see the word savior, put in the word deliverer, okay? And then look in the context, 5, 10, 15, 20 verses on either side of the verse to find out what kind of deliverance is in view. And when you do that and you study those words carefully in their context, you will discover that the Bible nowhere uses that word in reference to eternal life, going to heaven when you die. There's a few places that are sort of iffy and questionable. Ephesians 2 is one of those. Uh, and so that's that they, they cause problems. Let me just give you an example. This one's a really simple example, but it's just an example of what I mean. In Matthew 8.25, the disciples are out on a boat in the Sea of Galilee. A storm comes up. Jesus is asleep in the bow. And so they cry out, Lord, save us. Okay, so is this the point where the disciples receive eternal life because they call out to Jesus to save them? <laughs> no. Okay, you're reading along. You come to Matthew 8.25. You see they say, Lord, save us. And you say, okay, I remember what Jeremy said. I'm going to stop. I'm going to take out the word save. I'm going to put in the word deliver. Lord, deliver us. And then I'm going to look into context to find out what kind of deliverance is in view. Guess what? It's a big storm. They're afraid of the ship capsizing. And even immediately after this, they said, they don't want to drown. Okay, so what kind of deliverance is in view? Well, this is deliverance from drowning. Lord, deliver us from drowning is what they're saying. They're not asking for forgiveness of sins so they can go to heaven when they die. Nothing like that. Okay? They don't want to drown. Okay? It's a very simple example. It's one I often use. Lots of other very simple examples in Scripture. Children will be saved through childbearing, Paul writes to Timothy. Oh, I'm sorry, not children. Uh, women will be saved through childbearing. <laughs> Women will be saved through childbirth. How much damage has a misunderstanding of that verse caused Christianity over the years? Well, take out the word saved, put in the word deliverance, look in the context, and find out what kind of deliverance Paul has in view for women in that context. It's not talking about going to heaven when you die. Okay, just an example. Do that study, the rest of that study on your own. I'm giving you examples, and we're going to do the same thing with Ephesians chapter 2 here, Okay. Uh, the rest of the uses of the word saved or salvation in the Bible follow a similar pattern. Okay, People can be saved from their enemies. They can be saved from sickness. They can be saved from war, from uh, financial ruin. They can be saved from premature physical death. 
uh, from the devastating consequences of sin in their life now. One of the reasons God doesn't want us to sin is he wants to save us from our sins, meaning save us from the destruction that sin brings into our life, here and now, in this life. Okay, so uh, it's a very common use of the word save. A variety of other things we can be saved or delivered from in the Bible. Okay, so again, that's saved and salvation. Let's do that here with us in Ephesians chapter 2. Okay, we're, we're, we're looking at Ephesians 2 verses sort of 4 through 10. Last time we looked at verse 4, where, remember, uh, we saw that God, but God, the biggest but in the Bible, but God, uh, he saw the problem we were in, which was described in verses 1 through 4, and so, but God, he stepped in to this problem of human violence, decided to do something about it. We pick up in verse 5 with what God set out to do. Verse 5, Paul says, Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses. Okay, so this dead in trespasses idea, just a summary of what he just Paul just wrote about in verses 1 through 4. And Paul is saying this is all based on his great love. Again, something Paul talked about in verses verse uh, 5, I'm sorry, verse 4. But Paul is showing that the activity of God with which he loved us, and again, this is related to his grace. He didn't step in because we were such great people or because we deserved it or because we had done something to, to, to make him love us. No, this is because simply because God is love, God loved us. It was a gracious act on his part. You know, that's going to be important later in the chapter when Paul calls us to live towards the rest of the world in the same way. We don't treat others with the love and grace that uh, we do because they're lovely or lovable or because they change their ways or because they've agreed to be friends with us. You know, nothing. We love them and we show grace towards them for the same reason that God loves us and shows grace towards us, simply because. Because God is love, because God is gracious, not through anything we deserved or earned on our part. Okay, anyway, that's this idea here. And now we get to this word saved in verse 5. By grace you have been saved. Okay, uh, this is basically just a, a repeat of what Paul just said. Okay, by grace is this concept of because of his great love with which he loved us. Okay, and then we have been saved. From what? Delivered from what? Well, he just mentioned it, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Okay, so here's this word saved. We substitute in the word deliverance. We see in the immediate context of the same verse, it's reference to being dead in our trespasses and sins because of parallelism. But even ultimately, it goes back to verses uh, 1 through 3, where Paul described this great dilemma, this great human problem in more detail how we were dead in our trespasses and sins because the devil's deceived us and uh, we accuse and we have desire and, and it leads to, to, to death uh, of ourselves and of them and of, uh, and of everything that God wanted for us. Okay? So when Paul says, by grace you have been saved, he's saying, by grace, by the love of God, because of God's great love for you, which with, he, which with, with which he loved us, you have been delivered from living in that way of death, living under that deception 
of lies and deceit that caused you to condemn and hate and even kill other people in God's name. We, we were blinded by Satan so that we engage, we humans engage in this never-ending cycle of human violence. The great deception is we think that our violence is justified and holy and righteous, whereas their violence is evil. And so what do we do? We fight violence with violence. We fight their evil violence with our good and righteous violence. Uh, but it doesn't work because the other side thinks the same thing. They think we are the evil ones. I was reminded of that just this week, this disastrous, just a horrifying a withdrawal of our troops from Afghanistan. I mean, honestly, we never should have been there in the first place. Okay, let's just admit that. Never should have been there 20 years ago in the first place. All right? Uh, but we are there. We were there anyway. And now uh, Biden administration has this disastrous rollout, leaving ten to 15,000 of our American citizens there. Uh, aside from that, uh, all of the Afghanistani uh, people, who helped us in some way, left all them there. We promised them. I, I'm trying not to get down to the politics of this. The point is, uh, we've seen video this week of the Afghan, uh, some of the Afghanistan people crying death to America. Okay, now why are they crying that? Well, they think, maybe rightfully so in some ways, that we were the aggressor, that we were the evil ones, that we were in there trying to impose our will on their people and who knows what. Uh, hurt their religion and their beliefs. And so they believe that they are the righteous ones in this conflict, and we are the evil ones. And of course, what do we Americans believe? We believe the same thing. We believe we are the righteous ones, and they are the evil ones. Okay, This is the problem that Paul is talking about, that Jesus came to deliver us from, and that God stepped in to do something about. This never-ending cycle of human violence against one another— Jesus came out of his out of God's grace to show us uh, to rescue us to deliver us there's a word deliver to save us from our addiction to accusation to scapegoating to violence Jesus came to show us a different way a better way a way of life and love and liberty which is what God always wanted, what God always desired for humanity. And that's what this salvation is. Did you ever hear me refer anywhere in there to forgiveness of sin, so you can go to heaven, receive eternal life when you die, sort of a thing? No, that's not what this is about. Salvation is about this problem of human violence that Jesus wants us to stop. And he showed us the way how to stop it. Okay, so what is salvation in Ephesians 2? It is deliverance from our addiction to violence against other human beings. It is deliverance from how we justify our violence against other human beings. It's being shown that uh, what the real problem is, that the violence that is in our own heart and mind, showing us how to handle this violence in a different way, in a way that actually turns from violence so that we can follow the heart of God and the example of Jesus. Okay? That is salvation in Ephesians chapter 2. And it fits perfectly with the description of the problem in verses 1 through 3, the solution, which we're talking about now in verses 5, or, sorry, 4 through 10, and then the application in verses 11 through 24. Okay, now, 
Uh, that's first sort of a uh, first part of verse five, but um, Paul goes on in verses five and six to further explain this salvation and this deliverance. He uses these three descriptive terms here to describe this. Uh, first, uh, he says we are regenerated with Christ, he, uh, made alive together with Christ. He's talking about here regeneration. This is when God gave us life. And we talked previously about regeneration back in our study of Ephesians 1.13. Regeneration is when we are given new spiritual life in Jesus Christ. We're sort of brought back to life with him. Uh, it's a brand new way of living. Okay? Again, Paul will go into detail on what this looks like and how this works, but he's just introducing it here. This is salvation. It includes regeneration, being given new life. This old way of life was a life of death. This new way of life in Jesus Christ is truly living. And so this is salvation, how to live in light of this new life that we've been given, this new spiritual life. Okay? Uh, the second sort of descriptive term here in the first part of verse 6, we are raised up together with Christ. This is resurrection life. We were resurrected, raised up together with Christ. Resurrection is a little bit different than regeneration. Sort of think of it this way. Regeneration is new spiritual life. Resurrection is new physical life. Okay, and both are important. You have just one or the other, then your body is not working together as a whole. Your, your person is not working together uh, with both the physical and spiritual life. And so we need both to be spiritually new and physically new. Okay, now... You and I don't have our physical life, uh, resurrected life, right now. Okay, We're still in our old body of sin, as Paul calls it, uh, speaks of it elsewhere. So physical resurrection is still a future reality for us, but Paul's speaking about it here as sort of a present reality, and this is one of those things that the New Testament does, often speaks of a future reality as a present reality, because we receive it by faith and we live in it by faith, Sort of tipping my hand here for how Paul is going to be talking about this concept of faith in verses 8 and following, okay? Um, but but it, it's sort of like, if you can think of it this way, uh, our future physical resurrection is sort of like an inheritance, you know, a financial inheritance that is yours. It's guaranteed to be yours. You, the money is in the bank already, you know, maybe you can think of it as a trust fund in a sense. The money's in the bank, but you can't really draw on it yet. But it is there. Okay? Now, if you have, say, a million dollars sitting in a bank somewhere, and you know it's there, that is going to affect how you make choices now in your life. Right? You're not going to be as stressed or as concerned about paying for certain things. You might even let a little bit of debt rack up. Maybe you won't. I don't know how you'll live. I honestly, I tried to think about this and I'm not sure what I would do, but just having that million dollars sitting there in the bank, it's going to make you look different at life. You might be able to take more risks than you otherwise would have and, um, you know, make investments that you, you otherwise might not have because you know you have that million dollar inheritance as a cushion, sort of, that it's not available to you yet, but it will be. So resurrection is sort of a bit like that. You can make risks with your life that you might not otherwise have made, you know, in your spiritual life, in your life of following Jesus, because you know that even if you die, you're going to rise again. Even if you mess up big time um, and destroy this current life, it's not a big deal. You have an eternal life, physical life on the way. It's going to be there. And that physical life is going to be sinless. It's going to be perfect. Okay, And what that does is it causes us to live in light of our resurrected body now. 
We can start living in light of that reality now. We're going to be sinless and perfect, so therefore we feel spiritually and theologically that we're no longer slaves to sin because we've died with Christ and we've risen with Christ. Again, this is a Pauline concept. He talks about everywhere. We're no longer under a crushing debt of sin, to sort of follow this analogy of the, of the inheritance. Sin is spoken of as a debt in some places. Well, the debt's been done away with because we've got that inheritance in the bank, okay? Anyway, so we're able to live in a completely different way because of our resurrection life, all right? Third and final description of our salvation is related to this. It's found in verse 6. Paul writes that we were made, that, that uh, he made us sit together in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. All right, this is, uh, I call this reigning with Christ. We have regeneration, uh, resurrection, and now reigning with Christ. Okay, so what does this mean to be seated with Christ in heavenly places? Well, we talked about this concept of in heavenly places before. It was mentioned first in Ephesians 1.3. We talked about it there, then again in Ephesians 1.20-23. And we'll see it again elsewhere in Ephesians. It's a, it's a sort of a theme that pops up occasionally in this letter. Point is, a lot of times when people see in heavenly places, they think, oh, this means in the heavens, you know, where God is. But that's not the way the, the phrase is used in Ephesians. In heavenly places actually refers to the places on this earth where God's rule and reign is being, is sort of taking over. It has been set up. Remember, one of the reasons Jesus came to this earth is not to take us all away from this earth so we could go to heaven and spend eternity in heaven with him. No, one of the reasons Jesus came to this earth was to bring heaven down to earth, to bring God's way of doing things, the kingdom of God, down to this earth. That's why when Jesus taught his disciples to pray in Matthew 6, he, he told them to pray that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, so heavenly places are the places on earth where the kingdom of God is making inroads, uh, launching, you know, beachheads, in a sense, on this earth, so that God's rule and reign can take a foothold, can, can, uh, can, can start to have an effect on this earth. So that we, as the ambassadors, as the hands and feet, as the people of Jesus, uh, can lead this world into the ways of the kingdom, into the new way that Jesus wants the world to live. Again, this is where the application section is going. Jesus came, he started the work, we're supposed to finish it, and one of those primary ways, one of the primary things that Jesus wants us to do is live at peace with one another, rather than in violence. Okay, so that's why he's talking about here this uh, reigning with Christ in heavenly places. It's about getting rid of the way this world usually functions, uh, with hate and violence and anger and murder and killing and accusation and blame and scapegoating treating our enemies like they're less than human so that we can kill them in God's name, get weight of all that and start living instead in the way of Jesus Christ with love and mercy and grace and forgiveness and acceptance. And we do this by love. Uh, we love our enemies just as he loved us while we were yet his enemies. Okay, so anyway, all this is related to the salvation, saved. We're to live in light of our regeneration, our resurrection, and our reigning with Jesus Christ. And by doing that, we live the sort of life that Paul uh, wants us to, that Jesus wants us to, which, which he's discussed. Final verse, let's just go real quickly, verse 7 here, uh, to sort of cue us up 
tee us up for verse 8 next time. Um, so, in light of this salvation that we have, which involves our a regeneration, a resurrection, and reigning with Christ, how should we act? How should we behave? Well, look, we've been given new spiritual life. We've been given new physical life. We've been seated with Christ so we can reign over this earth. We have infinite resources at our disposal. So how are we to live? Look, uh, we're not supposed to be ashamed of whose children we are. We're supposed to be proud of our family, proud of our family name, proud of our Father, God. We're not supposed to worry about worldly concerns because our Father, the King, is watching out for us. Uh, we have this new life, which is eternal life, being raised with Jesus Christ. We have a royal position. Okay? And, and so this, this concept here in verse 7, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. Paul is just saying that uh, these things that we have been given to us, it's not a little one-time gift, not a little boost in the temporary power boost or anything. These are not temporary. They are, they are not limited. Uh, this salvation and all of the related gifts and blessings that come with it uh, are ours now. They begin now, but they continue through all the ages, through all the ages to come. Uh, which includes all of eternity, not just the ages of human history, but all the ages of eternity. And we are going to spend eternity exploring and investigating and looking into and searching the heights and depths of, and, and widths of God's love for us. Uh, he loves us and will always love us. And we're only just now beginning to see the smallest glimpses of that love. But we will spend all eternity exploring this love in greater detail. And that also is, is inspiring and exciting because, again, it shows us, it, is, it helps us know how better to live now, okay? So, all of that, 5 through 7. We went through those verses fairly fast, but that's because I want to slow down a little bit as we get into verses 8 and 9 and so on. But what is the salvation or the deliverance? Just sort of wrap things up here that we've been given in Jesus Christ. It's this. The way we used to live, verses 1 through 3, is that we used to live in the realm of death, where we accuse and condemn and kill others because we didn't know of any other way to live. Okay? But because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, we are now able to truly live the way we're supposed to. We have new spiritual life, which is regeneration. We have new physical life which is resurrection. We have new powerful life, which is reigning with Jesus Christ. So we've been delivered. We've been saved from that old way of life. And we've now been given a brand new way of life that we can begin exploring now and will be able to explore for all the ages to come. Okay, in this new life, what does it look like? It looks, well, it looks like what God did for us. It's based on love grace, mercy, and forgiveness. In a word, this new way of life looks just like Jesus. Now, that's pretty exciting. We're supposed to live that way because Jesus lived that way, and this is the new life that uh, he wants us to live. Not that old way. We've been saved, delivered from that old way of life. We can now live in a brand new way of living that looks and acts just like Jesus. All right, now Paul's not talk, done talking about this salvation, about this deliverance we have. He will continue in verse 8 to show us how. That's the big question, right? How? Okay, Paul, it's great. We've been delivered. 
I don't feel delivered. I don't act delivered most of the time from that old way of life. I still want to see my enemies suffer and die, um, if I'm being honest with myself. Okay, so how can we live this way? I'm not God. How can I do this? Well, that's what Paul begins to address next time in, in, in the next verse in Ephesians 2.8. And that is where we will pick up in our next study. Ephesians 2.8-10, in those verses, we will see how we can start showing the world a better way to live. How we can fulfill our calling to reveal the life of Jesus to this dying world. Make sure you join us then. I'm pretty excited about it. We'll see you next time when we pick back up with Ephesians 2, 8.